When facing these trials and tribulations, you need to remember who you are. That's Peter's point. He knew that his readers needed to know their identity in Christ in order for them to stand firm in persecution and suffering. Welcome to the Fox Den with Terry Fox. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Fox Den. It was a sad state of affairs. She worked tirelessly holiday after holiday to put a spread on the table adequate for large family gatherings. And she did this for years. But toward the end of her life, she lacked the ability to continue. Her dementia had taken its toll. By the time my grandmother died, she didn't even know who she was. Can you imagine that? Not knowing who you are? I think many Christians suffer from spiritual dementia. They don't know who they really are. They think they do, but they don't. Peter encountered the same thing with the Christians to whom he wrote. To encourage them, he helped them recognize their identity in Christ. Now, to begin, I want to give you some background information on Peter's first letter. Around the time he wrote this letter, many people throughout the Roman Empire persecuted Christians. For example, Roman Emperor Nero blamed the Christians for the fires in Rome. Though the Christians didn't cause the fire, he made them the scapegoat. He could easily target them because many people hated them. In fact, Nero burned Christians to light his garden. People in the Roman Empire considered Christians strange because they refused to worship all gods of the culture, and they only worshipped one god. Sounds kind of like our culture today, doesn't it? Our culture ridicules you for believing that Christ is the only way and that not all religions lead to God. Back in Peter's day, many accused the Christians of things like cannibalism because they ate the body and drank the blood of Christ. And because many people hated Christians, they faced pressure and persecution. In fact, tradition states that both Peter and Paul were killed under Nero's rule. At the time of Peter's letter, many Christians suffered because of their faith in Christ. And therefore, Peter encourages his readers and he prepares them to endure suffering. And Peter acknowledged that we suffer in Christ as part of our union with him. He suffered, so we suffer. Peter even connects our suffering with Christ to the grace of God. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. But what is the root of Peter's encouragement? Well, Peter encourages his readers by reminding them who they are in Christ. He's pointing them to their identity in Christ. In his introduction, Peter addresses his readers in verse 1. He calls them elect exiles. The triune God chose them and saved them. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Then in verses 3 and 4, he informs them that God caused them to be born again. Now they have an everlasting inheritance waiting for them, which God himself secures. Later in chapter 1, he reminds them that God ransomed them with the precious blood of Christ. Do you see how Peter encourages them, how he's preparing them? We would do well to follow suit in our American churches. Instead of encouraging our people to do more for Christ, spend more time telling them who they are in Christ because of what God has done to them and for them. Peter tells them of their status, elect exiles. God purchased them with the precious blood of Christ because he chose them before he created all things. And Peter reminds them that God has taken a special interest in them, even though they may suffer greatly because of their union with Christ. And Peter informed his readers that they did nothing to receive this great blessing. God took the initiative and he did all the work. 
You can see already that Peter reveals their identity in Christ, and he hasn't even gotten to chapter 2. So in chapter 2, Peter tells his readers that God has built them up like living stones into a spiritual house. And Christ is the cornerstone on which God builds. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-8. through 8. And in verse 9, he tells them that God called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Elaborating on verse 9, Peter says in verse 10, At one time they lived outside the people of God, but now God brought them in to be his people. Now they've received mercy. Peter begins with our prior status. In verse 10, he uses a word that points back in time. The English Standard Version translates it once. Peter has our past in mind here. For example, once I was in college, meaning sometime in the past I attended college. So right away, Peter draws us back in time by using this simple word, once. But what is Peter getting at? To answer this question, I think a review of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 will help. In Genesis chapter 2, we see that God created Adam and he placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God gave him a simple command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what would happen to Adam if he ate from that tree? He would die. That was the penalty for disobeying God and eating of that tree. And indeed, Adam disobeyed God. We see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, that he ate the forbidden fruit. Then we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, that God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. He kicked them out of the kingdom. Now, before we continue, let me address an issue that most people have with God banishing Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. They say something like, why did God kick them out of the Garden of Eden for such a minor infraction? It was just a piece of fruit. If you hold this view, then you don't understand sin. You see, Adam's sin wasn't a minor violation like a parking ticket. Furthermore, God's not being nitpicky here. Adam violated the law of a holy God and God acted justly by banishing them from the Garden of Eden. In other words, Adam refused to obey God and God did what was just. But even worse, by his actions, Adam called God a liar. You see, had he truly believed God, he would not have eaten the forbidden fruit. His disobedience proves his lack of faith. Furthermore, he believed Satan, the father of lies, over God, who cannot lie. Because Adam violated God's simple command, God rightly banished him from the Garden of Eden. However, God did this not because he was insulted, but because he's just. Adam should have obeyed God, and he shouldn't have eaten the forbidden fruit. However, Adam, for some reason, didn't think he needed to listen to God and obey him. His disbelief led to disobedience. He took his fate in his own hands and he ate the forbidden fruit. Unfortunately for us, Adam represented us in the Garden of Eden. So when Adam sinned, we sinned in him and we fell with him. As Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, sin and death came through Adam. He represented us in the Garden of Eden, and we sinned in him and fell with him in his act of disobedience. We see that in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 16. And therefore, God banished us from his kingdom. In Adam, we do not belong to the people of God. Now, we can't just simply lament our guilt in Adam. Truly, we sinned in him and fell with him in the Garden of Eden. However, we all sin by following our own sinful desires. In other words, we add to our guilt by our own sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. Our own sinful desires cause us to hate others, to be dissatisfied with what God has provided, 
to distrust him, to seek self-gain, to elevate ourselves above others, to elevate ourselves above God, and so on. Therefore, at one time, we belonged to no people, and we had not received mercy. But now, this is a very important transition. We were not a people, and this was bad news indeed. However, we see something wonderful in verse 10. Once not only implies a past status or event, but it also implies a change to that status. Once I attended college, but I received my degree and I no longer attend. Peter drives this point home with the phrase, but now. And this ought to be music to our ears. Our status has changed. Where God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, he brought us back into his kingdom, into his family. We were not a people, but now we're God's people. At one point, God's wrath zeroed in on us, but now we've received his mercy. This is great news. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, Paul says that we were dead, but God made us alive with Christ, raised us with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Once we were spiritually dead, but now, by the grace of God, we live with Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says that God delivered us from Satan's domain and he transferred us to Christ's kingdom. Peter makes the same point in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Once we existed in darkness, but God called us into his marvelous light. In all these passages, we see a transition from death to life, domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, darkness to light. Peter says, once we were not a people and had received no mercy. However, God brought us into his family and he made us his people. Now we've received mercy. This is a beautiful proclamation. So how did this happen? Is it possible that God saw something good in you and he showed kindness to you because you're really a great person? Maybe God needed you on his team to do his work. Do you think that's possible? Perhaps God just couldn't live without you. Is that it? The answer to all these questions is no. So then how did this happen? Peter gives us a glimpse throughout his letter up to this point. Starting from the beginning of his letter, Peter calls us elect exiles. He says in verse 2 that the three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, chose us, then saved us. God foreknew, the Spirit sanctified, the Son shed his blood. Peter goes on to say in verse 3 that God caused us to be born again. God extended his mercy to us based on his grace alone. And Though we deserve his wrath, he extended his mercy to us. This is your identity in Christ. I hope you caught that you had nothing to do with your salvation. You see, it simply pleased God to save you. Now, a major obstacle hindered our salvation. In order for God to bring us into his family, into his holy family, we needed to be righteous. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. However, we're guilty by association with Adam. And furthermore, as I've already mentioned, we add to our guilt by our own conduct of violating the holy law of God. We are unrighteous. How does the unrighteous become righteous? He doesn't. He's unrighteous. Nothing can change that. However, there is another solution. Because you're unrighteous, you must be credited with someone else's righteousness. And that's exactly what God has done. He removed our sins by putting them on Christ, who was crucified in our place. And at the same time, God imputed or put to our account, he credited to us the righteousness of Christ, which we received by faith 
alone. You don't earn it. This is the great transaction. God puts our sins on Christ who shed his blood on our behalf. Peter told us this in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 1. He then put the righteousness of Christ to our account. Now, you can listen to episode 4 where I talk about this in full. You see, just as Adam represented us in the Garden of Eden, Christ represented us in his perfect life and his death on the cross and in his resurrection. Though he never sinned, God put our sins on him and he suffered the death that we deserve because of our guilt. Because Christ was crucified in our place, God has forgiven our sins because of Christ's perfect sacrifice. Now that our sins have been sufficiently judged in Christ, God has adopted us as his people. He now declares us righteous because he united us to Christ by faith, and his sinless life belongs to us. Now we're God's people, and that's your identity. So let me ask the question again, how did this happen? God did it. We passively receive the blessing from him. Because of God's grace alone and the work of Christ alone, God made us his people. We've now received mercy. Again, this is your identity in Christ. If you trust Christ for your salvation, you are God's people. You have received mercy. What a glorious transaction God has made for you. However, if you haven't trusted Christ for your salvation, you're not a people. If you haven't recognized your sin and offense against our holy God and gripped the work of Christ for your salvation, trusting that his work alone is sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins, you haven't received mercy. Therefore, I urge you to recognize your sinfulness and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, depending on his work alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will be one of God's people. Then you will receive mercy. And God promises this, and he cannot lie. Perhaps you struggle with past sin, wondering if God can forgive you. Yes, he can. And you might say, you just don't understand. My sins are so great, God could never forgive me. No, I'm sorry, you don't understand. God's grace and mercy are far greater than your most heinous sin. Your sins can be forgiven. No sin is too great for God's grace. Now, you might say, right, but my sins are really bad. I get it. You have enormous, disgusting sin. I get it. However, God's grace outperforms your sins. That's what he tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Humble your heart. You're not greater than God. Trust me, I know how bad your sins are. They're just as bad as mine. But God can forgive you. Perhaps you encounter challenging circumstances. It seems like the world is overcoming you. Maybe you have compounding trials, one crisis after another. Don't let your circumstances lead you to believe that God has expelled you from his kingdom, that he's withdrawn his mercy from you. He hasn't. God knows what he's doing, and he hasn't expelled you from his kingdom. He hasn't expelled you from his family. When facing these trials and tribulations, you need to remember who you are, your identity in Christ. That's Peter's point. That's what he's doing in his letter. He knew that his readers needed to know their identity in Christ in order for them to stand firm in persecution and suffering. You too need to know who you are in Christ. You need to know your identity in Christ in order to stand firm as our culture tries to force you to kowtow to its ungodly agenda. You don't belong to this sinful world anymore. God purchased you with the blood of Christ and he applied the work of Christ to you. Now you belong to God, not as a slave, but as his child. You are his people. 
And from him, you have received mercy. That's your identity in Christ. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please email me at terry at thefoxdenjournal.com. If you enjoy The Fox Den, please leave a positive review and share this podcast with others. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. The Fox Den is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Thanks for listening. And remember, faith comes by hearing.